1: When I was in the family when I was dedicated to the cause of the air, I was at that point a second generation witness. Which... I was laying there, practically. I, the I had her hold me as if I was living. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were rolled right, back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice.
2: Welcome to Consphere Normal, guys. That was our uh, brand new intro song, courtesy of Mr. Lucas Reed.
3: Yeah, he had courtesy
2: to... of Turbo Slut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: that's my electronic name.
2: That's right, and uh, we're sitting here. Well, we got like actual headphones now, and all kinds of all kinds of cool stuff.
3: Yeah, we're legit.
2: Like, like, like it's an actual studio going on here. Like <laughs> Adam you know,
3: looks like dude? Adam looks like one of those those. Uh, uh, mentally challenged people that, that has to, like, close off his ears for whatever reason. I'm not sure why they do that.
2: Right. You're going to get, us, get us some more mail there, Link.
3: Hey, I didn't say retard.
2: Hey, you just did. Anyway, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we last met, and tonight we have coming on uh a return guest. So I believe this is like the fifth or maybe even sixth time for this guest, and that's uh, Mr. Micah Hanks. And we're just basically we're just going to talk about you know stuff that he's been working on, and I want to kind of get his uh, ideas on like current events that are going on too. But first of all, it seems like every time that we meet, it's this summer. It's been right after some like shooting that has happened. That we've talked about this several times now on the show. Every time that we've come back, there's been some other kind of incident. And this last one, of course, was this incident with the...
4: The reporter. Yeah,
2: the reporters. in. Uh, well, the guy also that, that, that killed the two, but killed the cameraman and the woman reporter. Uh, he was a reporter himself. And this happened in Virginia back on, I think it was Wednesday morning. And... Apparently, what it was was you had this reporter, an ex-reporter named Vester Flanagan, the second, or something like that. He was called. He was uh, fired from this uh, radio like TV station in Virginia, Roanoke, Virginia. And when he was he was let go from there, he was all butthurt and, about and it. a couple a couple years later, which was on this last Wednesday. Uh, We recorded this on August 30th. He went up, found out where these two people were that were doing a report on some kind of like grand opening of a, what was it, like a civic center or something or like some kind of park. And they, of course, were interviewing somebody. He went up and he shot these two people. actually shot all three of them. But he killed uh, the reporter and he killed the cameraman and the other lady was wounded, okay, in the back and.
3: Then is that's some kind of famous chick, right? Di- Diane Walter? Diane Curtis? No, some, like, no, no. There was, okay. there
2: was nobody that was, okay, that was okay famous. Of course, we all know the name. Like the uh, was uh, the 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 woman reporter that was killed was her name was Allison Parker, and the. Cameraman killed was was Adam Ward. Uh, later, he fled the scene. Uh, apparently, either earlier than that, or I think, but actually, before he actually committed it, he sent to some like a twenty-three page manifesto to I think ABC News. And he had also, believe right after, had Twitter had put on his Twitter account, had actually posted. A video that showed him basically like first person shooting these uh, these people, and this video, right? So all his
4: followers like immediately had it like yeah, flashed to them,
2: right? Uh, And then later on, apparently he had fled the scene. He had gone to the airport, gotten a car that he had rented. Uh, left and then left Roanoke and apparently I think was somewhere close to DC when the cops caught up to him. And apparently he killed himself, put a bullet in his brain. Uh, That's the story that, that we're getting from this. Uh, So apparently what his claims were, why he had been fired was that he claimed that he had been discriminated against racially because he was a black guy. Also the guy, also he was gay Uh, what exactly that means? Who knows? But he had been discriminated against because he was black. He made all these claims, apparently, at a at a TV station down in Tallahassee, Florida, that he had been he that he had been discriminated against, and apparently he had gone to court. They actually had heard like an interview with his former lawyer. That said, that there was some validity to the to that said there was some validity to the claims, but then again, who knows? Uh, by the time he gets over there to the Rhode uh, TV station, he is making all these kind of strange claims that, uh, well, just little things that he would say that people would say would apparently would set him off. Like apparently they uh, this one lady Allison Parker, one the one that was killed, said something about. Um, she was going to go work in the field, which means out, you know, going out to work as a reporter in the field. Well, apparently, he took this to mean cotton field, is what I've been hearing. Uh-huh. Uh, and also something about swinging, and that he took that wrong as a, like as a reference to monkeys, and, and just like apparently, this guy had a real like almost this this kind of. Uh, like psychotic uh, obsession with being uh, being said that he was a he was being discriminated against Hey, buddy, making fun of me dude right. I just know it right it was like it was like a paranoia <laughs> uh, Another thing that he said in this manifesto was that he did this as like a revenge for the for the Charleston shooting uh, had a few things to say about Dylan roof <laughs> about the guy who killed uh, the people in Charleston back in uh, June. Now, what's come out, if you look on the internet, it's only been four days since this happened. But already, like, the next day, there were already these debunking videos that were saying that it wasn't, that it was a false flag, that it was a hoax. Much like what you saw happen with, like, Sandy Hook and with Newtown and stuff like that. And, look, I wanted to get you... To come in and talk about this too, because you said you were watching those videos, and you had some yeah. doubts about like that. The, this the, the the video that's in doubt, that's in question, is supposedly this this video that he took himself of committing the crime uh,
3: on um. What, what's that social media thing? Uh, where everyone posts the short videos too now? Oh, t- t- Tumblr. What did he post it to Tumblr? Tumblr, right? or Reddit. Is Instagram, I guess, I guess, I think it was Tumblr. Well, he, he, Pretty he sure it was Tumblr.
2: Video Twitter, that's
3: oh, I, Twitter. That's what I'm looking for. Right. Yeah, I don't use that crap. <laughs> I don't know.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah, but like, uh, I, I totally. I mean, like, I saw the first video on Live Leak. Uh, you know, from the cameraman's perspective, and I, I totally thought it was real. I was like, oh, I get this. You know, revenge killing. I got fired from the news station. You know, people right. discriminating against me. Right. I get that, and it seemed totally real. Whenever, that, whenever his video came out and uh, he was sitting there hold, holding his gun, you know, gun drawn on uh-huh. them. Uh, and I told you this earlier. I don't care if uh, the new staff is trained to block out their surroundings and everything going on during an interview. I don't care. Either way, like someone's sitting there holding a weapon like drawn on you and nobody noticed out of their peripheral vision that this guy.
2: Right. I mean, that's yeah. a,
3: you know, uh, us, you know, sitting here right now, if there's someone out of our peripheral holding a gun on us. Yeah, you're going to see it, man. You know, yeah. e- even if they're almost behind your head, you're going to see it.
2: Well, when I saw that video, that's the main that's the main thing that I thought of, which is like how could they not see this guy walk up to to them with a gun drawn?
3: Yeah. In and then his he hand. he pauses for a good like five yeah. seconds before the yeah. video and even apparently turns Apparently, someone, off.
2: someone I, I saw and I didn't actually hear this in the video, but somebody says that you can actually hear him say "bitch" or something. Yeah, yeah, I heard right that too. He I shoots, heard that yeah. right before he starts he shooting. Does, he's like "bitch." Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's there's that thing, and then also they're they're coming up. He's coming up behind them on this wooden. Uh, Wooden, like, wooden walkway. Right. Now, how could you not hear that?
3: Yeah, you could hear every like, step. you
2: could hear every step. You could hear, like, the, the squeaking of the wood, right? right. Uh, you know, how's that? That's, that's odd to me as well. Uh, now, another thing that people pointed out in these videos was that apparently uh, you can see the guy's sleeve... And the sleeve is like blue with kind of like white stripes. And the, what we actually get to see for a very the, the, the freeze frame of that very brief glimpse as the cameraman fell down and caught the guy, that you, they say that he's all, you know he's dressed all in black. And other, but other people were saying that the hand was not the hand of a black man, it was the hand of a white guy. But if you look at the pictures of Esther Flanagan, He was a pretty light-skinned guy, pretty light-skinned black guy. So I could see that that probably would actually have been probably his hand. Yeah, right. That is a little odd, but if it's like he's wearing a vest or something or he's wearing an overcoat, maybe the the shirt is poking out there. Um, Another thing that people have been saying on these videos is that he starts shooting and you see her scream. She screams and starts and starts to run. Now a lot of people are saying, "Now, is that is that possible for someone to have been shot at at point blank range and not immediately to have fallen to the floor? Would you have been in so much shock that you would have been actually been able to?" Well, run well yeah, as long, that? as long
3: as she didn't get hit in any vital place on the body, then that. The, but she uh, had
2: to have been because the, she was killed. The yeah,
3: adrenaline. Even then, I've I've been deer hunting.
2: Yeah.
4: And. Shot deer that it w- it was definitely a mortal wound, and they would still run.
2: And they would still sometimes hundred uh-huh. yards okay. just just
4: from adrenaline. And, right. So
2: yeah, I mean that's what I'm asking here. You know, because like, people are, are, are questioning that and saying, you know, well, would she have been able to run? Well, I mean, if it is a, if it is a point where there's like an adrenaline rush or something, then maybe yeah, she could. Or maybe you, your body goes into such shock that you don't actually really feel.
4: Right. You don't actually yeah.
2: really feel the bullets.
3: Well, uh, I'm still. Of course,
2: we don't see what really happens, and we don't see what happens to the cameraman. I'm
3: still not convinced that, that it's a it's, fake, though. I'm still yeah. not convinced because, I mean, just like I said, like we we were just messing around with the news crew last time I went to go see a concert. Like me and my my new friend that I made there were going to run by like drunk and scream yeah. something like, you know, behind the reporters and stuff, and they didn't see us standing right. We were sitting there like planning right beside the reporters and stuff, and they didn't even bat an eye at us. So. So
2: you don't think it's a you don't
3: think it's a fake? I mean, I, well, I but don't you were know. saying I really you told me earlier. Well, I, well, that, I, like, I was, who,
2: who who films themselves doing that?
3: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I said it's a possibility, but I really don't know. In that case, yeah, there's not enough evidence, really.
2: Well, the question of who films themselves doing that actually, you can kind of explain that because this guy, Bester Flanagan. He went by this fake, which is another thing, he went by this fake name named Bryce Williams. So it makes you wonder how many reporters out there actually have fake names. A lot, yeah. But, uh, so, this guy, he was a reporter, right? And he, he, a television reporter, and he understood, like, the power of media. And he probably understood, like, what exactly it was that he was actually doing by filming this. And the statement that he was making by doing it and putting it out on the internet, and then that getting picked up by the news services and and leaked out. Uh, Now, another thing that I I just, I watched a few videos before I actually came over here, and a lot of people are making these videos about um, the witnesses or the people that have been talking to the news. The two main people that have been talking to the news have been Allison Parker's father and her fiance okay and a lot of people are making the same kind of similar conclusions and saying that like with um with like Sandy Hook they think that. Uh, some of the people there, like you know, that one, one the the guy that was uh, the the father of one of the kids. Remember that we so we we talked about that a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, the guy that seemed
3: like an actor, yeah, right? That, yeah, that, that, that came out suspicious. smiling,
2: and then kind of like when Getting he got hurt. to the microphone, <laughs> <didn't> talked to <laughs> Fun, the press. Funny
3: joke, guys. Yeah. Now it's time to get upset.
2: And then he started like psyching <laughs> himself to cry. Yeah. You know, so a lot of people are making the same kind and of, uh, of of um association with that and saying that, especially with the guy that's the fiancé, a lot of people were saying that, you know, how can he be talking to the press? How can he be saying all this? Like, would he not be just, like, so completely distraught as to just be completely ruined by this? You never know. I mean, that guy (laughs) himself was a reporter. He's a newsman. Uh, He probably understood that he needed to go out and do this, and went and And it's probably uh, Just in a state of These people may just be in a state of shock Right, just, there's we still disbelief know. Yeah
4: you know, There's a lot of that, especially right early on With something that traumatic You don't, I mean You don't right. necessarily experience all of the, the sadness And the, the loss I, I, and stuff I, I, really. I sat
3: there and just like watched it again and again I was like, dude, that is brutal Yeah, the actual shooting Yeah which which one you know, the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the cameraman perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was crazy. But he, back to these guys and and talking to the they're talking to the press, you know, it, it's so so easy to judge people and say like you know what what would you like and put yourself. In that situation, uh, if my wife died or this happened, you know, I would think I would be completely distraught. Would I really be talking to the press? You know, but somebody else might handle it differently. You don't know. The other thing is, is that they've talked to the father, and the father immediately started going into this whole gun control thing. Started going immediately into the gun control meeting. and it's and and that and I think that really makes people suspicious as hell oh for sure because they think
4: we're, we're all looking for the government to, right. to have a, an excuse or you know
2: right yeah i mean they they they. that's why these false flag things i think probably come from is that they are just it, coming out with this the media is already coming it, out with this if you already? won't release
3: your guns and this will just continue yeah. to happen and and more innocent lives are going to
5: suffer.
2: Well, yeah, I mean the day of, I mean it happened in the morning and already at that night I'm watching it and you can see they're already talking about it. They're already talking about the gun control thing. I mean for God's sakes, can we can these people just be buried and their families mourn for them? And and put them in the ground, and so and then everybody can go on, and then we can talk about it, but not like hours afterwards. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I made the observation that I really feel like these twenty four hour news channels, and you, a lot of that is like they just bring fuel to this fire of these other people that are making all these false flag claims. Yeah, because they're really putting people on it possibly in an unnatural position by asking the boyfriend or asking the dad constantly about what's going on. So these people never, they're not getting any time. Once everybody forgets about it, once the people are, once their loved ones are, the funeral is done, once all that is, is happened, then those people probably have time to break down. You know, you
3: know what, you know, what would be appropriate to talk about also is the Antioch shooting Uh, in a, you know, I, I was just in the theater. Kira and I were in the theater the other night, going to watch a movie, and uh, they started digging through her purse at the you know the podium where the guy yeah. checks your tickets and stuff. We
2: talked about that as a, like, right after the, on the show.
3: Oh, did we? Yeah. Okay. We well, Rob did. Well, uh, you know, just just real quick. You know, they they started checking her purse, and she's like, "You guys never did that before when I came here," and they're like, "Oh, it's because of the Antioch shooting. Right. It's, it's a new protocol now." And right. I'm just like. I was like, the guy
2: had an airsoft gun yeah, and, and a, mace well, and an axe. <laughs> that's what we do, though. We we're not proactive. <laughs> we just always react. Yeah. To like these random acts of violence, <laughs> sometimes. Okay. Uh, but you know, I'm going to make the point here that it's almost just like these 20, the, the the media, the twenty four hour news channels. I mean, they are almost just like buzzards, man. They just circle. Yeah. And they wait for the next event. And they talk you know, about oh, the same shit. Charleston. All day. Charleston <laughs> happened. Annoying. Charleston happened. You know, circle. They all swoop down. Chattanooga happens. They circle. They all swoop down. Well... You know, and- <laughs> this happens in Roanoke. It, it, it's just like... It, it's, it's just like they... They just like, it's just like birds descending on dead carcasses. I It's, it's that, it's literally that bad. And,
4: and not only are they not helping the situation, but they're, they're kind of perpetuating it in a sense that they're, they're making these people celebrities. They're doing, it's exactly what they wanted. Right. They go and they do these shootings because they want people to hear about their play or their opinion or whatever. And right. it works every fucking time it works. And it's just like back in, uh, what was it like the seventies where there was, um, the your people were streaking all the time, and they, anytime there was live newscast, somebody would go streaking. Mm-hmm. All of the news um, stations got together and they're like, Anytime this happens, we're just going to turn the camera and not mention it. And it died in like a month. The yeah. whole fad, it went away.
2: It, yeah, everybody knows who Vester Flanagan is now. Yep. There, no, nobody knew who the guy was. He was just this down on his luck ex reporter with paranoid delusions. And all of a sudden, but he knew, he knew exactly what to do. He knew exactly who to send it to, and he he saw the patterns of all these other shootings, like the Elliot Rodger thing, of him sending the manifesto out.
4: Right, and I wouldn't know. be surprised if we get copycats of him now.
2: Right, exactly. And he's just a, even though he says that he was just a uh, that he was against Dylan Roof and what he did, he was just a copycat of what Dylan Roof did in Charleston. It, you know but also you know one other thing is all these four of these guys have political leanings you know dylan roof you know the 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 uh, white supremacist stuff okay we knew where he came from uh the guy in chattanooga this abdul aziz same thing radical you know he become radical radical islam uh then you had the guy in the, in the theater shooting in Lafayette, Louisiana. He was pretty much in the same way the white supremacist stuff, but also very much into like kind of this anti feminism and also this um, just like kind of like paranoid conspiracy theory stuff. Okay. And now this guy, Vester Flanagan, same kind of thing, except he felt that he was being slighted because he was black and because he was gay. And I feel like was, we should. That have, was
3: political as well. I feel like we should have like trading cards of all these guys. Yeah, it's almost
2: it's almost gotten that bad, right? I yeah. It, well, I mean, it's like serial killers. You know, we do the same thing. I mean, you get you know serial killer T shirts of Charles Manson's and Albert Fish on them. You know.
3: <laughs> yeah, some, some crazy, people are a little too stuff. interested in Ted
2: Bundy. Them. Yeah, I mean, there's a morbid fascination with these characters. Yeah. It, uh, the guy that was Charles Whitman, the guy in the 1967 who shot the people in, uh, from the tower in Austin, Texas, you know, it, our, the way our media has uh, has been covering all this stuff. And it's like, even if it's not a false flag, even if it's not this whole big agenda to take away our guns, the media is still going to push. That yeah, they're still gonna push some they're still gonna push some kind of the ideology. news got
3: the news get on my nerves so bad with the antioch shooting man it gets so irritating yeah. i'm like will you please shut up about it like four four days later it was still like all day long
2: <laughs> yeah but but the air but the airsoft and it was an airsoft gun yeah <laughs> and he had mace and a hatchet and he didn't even use the hatchet on anybody yeah well the, the, you know the cops took him down but the other thing, too, you know, with this whole gun control meme is they were talking about, well, I, I saw some footage of the dad of Allison Parker talking about how we should not have these mental health, the people that are, 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 are mentally ill to go get guns, you know. And I agree with that. <laughs> However, in this case, Mr. Flanagan was never, was never said to be mentally ill he didn't have any history of treatment that somebody that would was gonna sell him a gun could look at he just he was just the simmering time bomb as he described himself and he went in and he bought a gun and was able to get it legally because you know he wasn't a he wasn't considered a paranoid he wasn't considered a schizophrenic or whatever you know it's like it doesn't work for this particular case yeah. but that meme of Mental illness with guns and gun control and all that—it just gets rammed down our throats. On, on, and and if these are—and as I've said before—if these are false flags, I don't even think that's even the reason for doing it. Are you gonna say something, Rob? Sorry. New world order. order. <laughs> 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 well, we're gonna get Micah's. Uh, thoughts on this too so but uh, Luke you want anything to add on this Rob do you think that all instruments are going to start going to like the fan fretboards <laughs>
3: <laughs> I hope not
2: Luke's, like been, no. Luke's been busily uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, Johnny Iron from the Iron Show uh, told me that uh, that he wants Luke as his co-host seriously yeah is is that, that, is I, that I, was, I was asking him to do a favor and he said he, he said, yeah, you got to give me Luke, though.
3: I, that, <laughs> I, know, I know that sarcasm. I know it is. We could rent him out.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rent Luke out <Godd> as <laughs> like a co-host co-host I, extraordinaire. I mean, dude, like, to your couch where are you going to get another
3: co-host that is like this knowledgeable and has so much to contribute <laughs> on, on every topic that we talk about? Like,
2: About not wanting to sit in traffic. I and, do my research every time. <laughs> You know, I know who the authors are before we get them on the show. <laughs> oh, I do want to say the last time we actually had Micah Hanks on back last year is that Luke was asking Micah a question and then just like completely melted down right in the middle of the sentence. I was, uh,
3: yeah. I was probably drinking heavy at the time or something.
2: It's like, oh, Oh, totally forgot, yeah, dude. Man.
3: Man, I get so... Sp- I was probably smoking some of Kira's mom's weed, man. Like that,
2: <laughs> well, that, you weren't with Kira then, I don't think. That
3: stuff was... Oh, re- Oh. That was back in the Bobby
2: days. Oh, it was probably
3: some Bobby weed then. <laughs> <laughs> so, something's
4: weed is to blame here. Yeah. So,
3: something fried don't my condone brain. We don't drug use. Yeah, we don't. We almost. don't actually... Yeah, uh, that's all... That's my character for the show. I don't that's actually right, smoke that's weed. Right.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm a
3: God-fearing man. I love Jesus.
2: <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's call it here, and uh, we'll we'll be right back, guys,
1: with Micah and Hank on paranormal. The fourth annual Paradigm Symposium will again be bridging the gap in Minneapolis, Minnesota, this October first through the fourth. The Paradigm Symposiums were founded and exist to present you, year after year, with the very best thinkers in their fields. From ancient cosmology to ancient aliens, archaeology to esoterics, alternative history to the sciences that illuminate our understanding of who we are and why we're here. Randall Carlson, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, Rita Louise, John Ward, Micah Hanks, and Barry Fitzgerald, along with several other phenomenal names in their fields, will be presenting at the Paradigm Symposium 2015, held at the Crown Plaza Hotel Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Get your tickets now for what will be another amazing, inspiring Paradigm Symposium. For tickets, go to Paradigmsymposium.com or call 651-468-8115. Come to think, leave inspired. Alright, we're back on Conspiracy Normal. And on the line,
2: we have a band that really needs no introduction. And that is Mr. Micah Hanks. And we're just going to talk tonight about some stuff that Mike has been working on. Talk about whatever he's interested in. Want to get his idea on some current events? But, uh, Micah, thanks for coming back on. I think it's like your 700th time on Conspiranormal. Yeah, pretty close. Pretty close.
6: Yeah. <laughs> it's funny every time I come on this show, you guys are like the man who needs no introduction. I'm beginning to think you just don't want to give an introduction. <laughs> there, there's, there should be more no, of his voice too, in the intro. We're
2: too we're too lazy. <laughs> No, it's
6: it's you want to get to all that enriching content with me. Absolutely. I, all, that,
2: uh, all that enlightenment that you're going to bring to us. Yes, yes.
6: Let me be the candle in the darkness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so how have things been for you, sir, since we spoke last? It's been a while. I think the last time you were on was June of last year, and we talked about, like, the disappearances in the woods and stuff like that but uh, how things have been going for you
6: Well I haven't disappeared yet uh and uh <laughs> but I've I've been at, uh, at no loss for adventure and um I believe since the last time I was on the show you and I got to catch up Adam and have dinner and yep. I regret not being able to be there live in studio with you guys in Nashville but today being yep. uh the 69th birthday of Father Hanks whom of course, as you guys know, being an Anglican minister, that's my dad, but also the the congregation refers to him as Father Hanks, which is really weird because I feel like i got all these siblings and stuff. So family history I didn't know about. but So uh, it's it's been a really good and a relaxing day because lately, I mean, I've been, uh, as, as they say in these parts, uh, you know, a popular co- colloquialism, you know, I've been tied in the middle and flapping at both ends. It's, there has been so much going on. And I think it's just that time of the year. And uh, so, right. you know, getting getting prepped for uh september's kind of going to give me maybe a couple of weeks down third week it's going to start picking up again october's going to be insane i'll i'll literally be traveling uh between here and england and back uh and and doing all kinds of stuff doing some conferences october's always my crazy month and so i've been trying to get as much research and work done uh leading up to all that as possible and so it's been a great but a hectic time lately I'm, i'm glad actually to kind of wind Wind down a little bit for at least one day. Catch up with you guys and you know hang out and, and talk about some of the interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, you know, October always seems to be one of those like really busy months, and it's going to be kind of busy for us at the beginning because we're going to be well with you at the Paradise Symposium. We're going to be there hanging out, doing some recording. So it's going to be awesome to get in and mix with you guys over there.
6: I cannot wait. Yeah, you, you know if you guys, I know you haven't been there, but uh, but you know this this being a first time for you. It's going to be a really great year, and and one of the cool things is is Adam. I've told you, I think I'm, I've just completed a book on podcasting. Which, yep, it was it was a bit of a book uh, that uh, I, I wanted to write it, and there, there were a couple of very important reasons why I wanted to write it because being a podcaster and starting off, I think uh, the Grayling Report podcast launched in late 2010 or early 2011, and um, you know when I, when I started, there there's always been a lot of information on the web about podcasting, but. Uh, some of the best books that I've read uh, that have been written on the subject don't necessarily hit all the finer points about certain things. Like, you know, how, what's the best way to monetize a podcast? You know, what are the what are the basics of if you've never done it before conducting an interview? Uh, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a, a program with co-hosts and they don't live nearby, what's the best way to set up your stuff so that you can have a co-host on the program? Uh, what do you do if your Internet cuts out and you've got to show that you have to co-host with somebody? I mean, I, I've always had a lot of <laughs> questions about the right way to do this. I bring up the podcasting thing because, yeah, rather than saying, hey, I'm going to write a book about podcasts like, you know, every other Tom, Dick, and Harry out there, I thought, no, let's do a book that's about like, let's say you want to be able to do this. You don't want to spend a ton of money. You like to travel and you like to be able to take your work with you and you want to keep doing this but be able to take it around with you. You've got questions and the other books either say way too much about the stuff that you don't even need to know or they don't even touch on the fundamentals that you want to know about. You know, let's let's look at how does a Maverick do this? And so the book, the complete guide to Maverick Podcasting, it's actually I have not said this anywhere. And and there's you'll see why I'm talking about the podcasting thing in a minute, but I do want to say this is the first time this has even been mentioned. The book is already available on Kindle. I have not made the public announcement. That is absolutely Oh nice that is that is exclusive to you guys right here right now. sweet. and that and that book is on, yeah, that is on Kindle, and it will shortly be available in print just as well. Um, why I bring up podcasting is because obviously you guys do a podcast, I do a podcast. A lot of us kind of kind of you know move back and forth between podcasting and the live radio thing, which is another thing that on the podcasting sites and in the podcasting books, you'll see you'll see very little about, okay, cool, I want to do my show live. How do we do that? Let's say you're going to an event or a conference. How do you do your, your you know your live show from a conference, um, which is what you'll often see a lot of at the Paradigm Symposium. And that's what's special about this year is that you guys picked such a good year to come up there because it's the fourth year running, and we've got so many podcasters that are going to be there. You guys are going to be there. Of course, Scotty and John will be there, which is always an momentous occasion because they do their show live every week. But, you know, John Ward is in Luxor, Egypt. Or in Sweden, half the time. Uh, and either way, they do their show live, and and they are halfway across the world from each other. Scotty and John. So it's always cool at Paradigm because they're able to get together and do their show live. I'm doing shows from up there. Jim Harold's going to be there. Graham America's going to be there. Expanded Perspectives is going to be there. And it's just like, wow, this is going to be like the podcasters invade Minneapolis. So I'm kind of hoping yeah. that this year, I'm, I'm hoping at this year's event. In addition to being able to have this be the first event, I've got this book available for. I'm hoping a bunch of us can kind of get together, the podcasters, just hang out, network, share some ideas, maybe even do some little after-hours stuff, some seminars and you know drinking sessions together. So this Sounds is good. Sounds good. This is and for all of the aforementioned, I mean, this is going to be a very special and a very different paradigm symposium. This one is the one where we're seeing, I think, the playing field is leveling. New media is coming to the forefront, and people presenting information and opinion and and unique perspectives on all this and commentary on the event, not just the speakers and the attendees, but those guys like you dudes who are there, you know, of course, you know, on Scotty's network, you know, doing it every week. Um, We're going to be there together and it's going to be a really interesting dynamic at this year's Paradigm Symposium. So I'm extremely excited about that, not just because of the speakers and the guests and everything, but, but also this new kind of technological component that's going to be present this year. It's going to be a really
2: interesting dynamic. Well, you know, as a podcaster yourself, Micah, I want to ask you, that brings up something to mind for me, is do you think that the podcasting thing is just getting started? Do you think that we're in the beginning? You think we're in the middle? I mean, where do you think we are with it?
6: You know, it's, it's funny because writing the book was kind of a labor of love because, you know, you know me and the kind of stuff we talk about on this show, a technical manual, even though there's a lot of experiential stuff. I talk about a lot of my personal experiences in the book and I try to make it really funny and really kind of lighthearted tongue in cheek. Um, so it was a bit of a labor of love trying to present a book that was both, uh, you know, enjoyable and, and, and kind of lighthearted like I like to be, but also informative. And it, it, this book ended up being 340 pages long. So I'm telling you, (laughs) you know, it, it, it's actually a lot longer than I thought. It's a, it's a bit of a Bible now that we're done. But one thing I learned throughout the writing of this book yeah, uh, you know, again, just as you said, Adam, I, I began to realize, my gosh, well, wow, uh, you you would think that it was all set in stone right now, and I would, and I, what what I found in this book, and I actually stated uh, thusly in the book, there are a lot of ways that you can do a podcast. There are um, there there is no one right way per se, but there are definitely a lot of wrong ways that you can do it, and a lot of you know people. <laughs>
3: AKA Uh, our early episodes.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah.
6: (laughs) There are a lot of great podcasts out there. No Agenda, you know, with Adam Curry and John Dvorak. Uh, If you go back and listen to their early episodes, you're like, what? This is not the same show. These are not the same dudes. That's the great thing about podcasting is that for the last few years, as as it's been, and Curry, by the way, being someone I reference in the book because he is largely credited with being. Um, the first person to actually... See, podcasts, I think, began with people putting audio up online for people to be able to download and listen. And there were some radio programs and whatnot that were doing that, archiving their shows like that. And so, really, technically they were podcasting. But, you know, Adam Curry is widely recognized as the first guy, one of maybe two people, but largely again recognized as the first who was taking those shows and making them available for subscription using RSS feeds. Yeah, he's considered the pod father. The pod father, Yeah. And, um, and so it's interesting because I look at really how podcasting has risen to prominence in the last few years we've all been kind of you know feeling our way through this it's interesting the early Graylian shows more or less sound kind of you know the same as, as the ones now although I've r- recently redesigned the studio and so there have definitely been some improvements on the audio quality they more or less sound the same if you listen all the way back to 2011 but you know what has changed is the way that we present the information, the feel of the show, the kind of guests we were booking. And that's what's beautiful is like, man, you do a show. Yeah, of course you guys are in a new facility yourselves. You've changed some of what you do. You're doing the show and you're, and you're actually streaming it on a, on a radio network now. That's what's cool about podcasting is there's so much room for change, growth, and development. And it's so DIY. I just love the DIY thing. Coming right. from working radio, I got so sick of this this attitude, And that's what's funny is I listen to your show, I listen to my show, Scotty and John, whoever. Um, I listen to some of the old air checks from when I was in radio of the live broadcasts from uh, you know, what was a multimillion-dollar studio we had here in Asheville. The podcasts I listen to that people are producing sound better 10 to 1 than the stuff that those radio produce, uh, production studios were, were putting out. In other words, on the DIY front, people get online, they read books like hopefully they're going to read this one that I've put out. They'll go to websites, you know, they'll study how to do a good podcast. They hone their thing. And rather than having to sit there and work for radio overlords in a facility that they know (laughs) nothing about the the equipment around them, you know, or let alone the process behind, you know, how you booking your guests and getting the calls in with podcasting, you have to learn all that stuff by yourself. And as you grow and develop and you hone your skill, you get better with time. And so, sure. Your podcasts sound different now from how they began. Mine do too. But that's what's so cool about podcasting is that not only has it kind of changed the whole, oh, we all have to sound like coast to coast thing. And now it's yeah. just more there 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 are so many different people doing so many different formats that present this kind of information whether it's, you know, conspiracy oriented stuff, you know, whether it's, you know, news and politics, the unexplained science, whatever. It's incredible. And uh, and now you're seeing the big-name broadcasters, NPR and people with serial on some of these shows. They're really, they're really trying to capitalize on something that really kind of started as this kind of a grassroots movement. And so just to summarize, it kind of reminds me a little bit of something that Andy Warhol said years and years ago. He said, as time goes on, there are going to be more and more people who are, being, are going to be less and less famous. I'm paraphrasing. But it's so cool because you're seeing famous celebrities putting out podcasts rather than having big time talk radio shows and yeah. then you're seeing people you know you're seeing guys and girls in their in their garages or in their kitchens doing podcasts that have twice the listenership and downloads than those famous celebrities and so it, it's really interesting the way that new media is changing the playing field and so yeah adam absolutely i think that we're really just seeing the beginning now and we're already beginning to see how how vastly this is changing our culture and the way that we assimilate media so again looking at all these things i thought really there needs to be a a no bs book that's written about this which is why i chose this title and this theme with the complete guide to maverick podcasting it focuses a lot on lifestyle and traveling which is you know something that is a big part of who i am these days and how you can do something like a podcast but take that stuff with you like you guys will be taking it with you to paradigm symposium so i can't wait to see how it goes and you know, maybe sit in with you on a show up there.
2: Yeah, absolutely, for sure. You know, Micah, I'm, uh, anybody that listens to this show, especially like some of the outro music that I'll put in, knows that I'm a big fan of punk rock. And I look at kind of like the, what we're doing with podcasting as kind of what punk rock did to the music industry. You know, yeah. it made it more, especially in the 80s, you had the whole indie record label movement then. And people were it was very much the DIY ethos that it really isn't now with music. And it's kind of more switched over, I think, into the podcasting, into that podcasting realm. Yeah. There's much words, more of a DIY ethic to podcasting now.
6: Doesn't have to be polished all the time. You know, yeah. it's one of my favorite groups, especially in the punk genre, that I love to listen to. And I've I've always <laughs> not only just admired, but I mean they're just some of the some of the best music in the world to me is black flag yeah uh i love the uh but but part of what makes those recordings great is how rough they were you know it was it was not super polished stuff <laughs> and, right uh, exactly and, and i would even say the same thing honestly about some of the bigger uh you know mega like metal bands of the 70s you know they i don't know i i think they were calling it heavy metal by then but still it's still to me it kind of is more like in that that strange kind of uh you know that, that 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 weird kind of period between hard rock and and, and heavy metal. But anyway, Black Sabbath, Ze- Led Zeppelin. You know they definitely had a rough quality in terms of from time to time you could hear John Bonham. You know clicking the the song off at the beginning. You could hear you know Robert Plant. You know yelling at somebody in the background or the dog barking. You know on like Dancing <laughs> Days. But, but what I love is that you know yeah the reason you hear all that is because they had the the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio there at Headley Grange, a hellishly haunted house. You know, one of England's most haunted, purportedly. Um, and then you also had, with, like, Black Sabbath, uh, they, I mean, as a matter of fact, I think, what was it, Volume 4, they recorded in an old haunted castle. Uh, Ozzy and Tony Iommi even said that they saw a ghost, supposedly, a hooded figure walking through the halls, and they followed this thing for a while, and then it vanished
2: they were probably trying to get a picture for the album cover
6: <laughs> but, you know I mean, not, not as if you know the first album they set that precedent with that hellish looking witch standing there you know yeah. something I love about that there's this deeply English deeply Gothic thing that comes through not just with Black Sabbath you know a bit of it was with Zeppelin although I think that rather than Gothic really I think that kind of archetypal mythology was more their thing but and, and those bands had a little bit of that even though they were big name groups. But then as, as music began to get more and more polished and we began to get further and further away from a band that went and recorded an album in a haunted house and had a hit that was eight minutes long. And we got more and more into this 80s and 90s era of it's got to be three and a half minutes if it's going to be radio friendly. And all this stuff was not to say that there wasn't great music being produced, but the trend in the mainstream was more and more this polished, perfect, you know, perfected kind of recording. And then you had the punk movement, which said, OK, cool, you guys take the high road fine and we're going to go this way. And yeah, podcasting has very much done that. You um, know, in, in an era where talk radio is just about as sanitized as anything that you see on um, on you know your 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 headline news or your MSNBC yeah. or your Fox News or your CNN, podcasts have said, okay, to hell with that, to hell with FCC compliance, to hell with these mainstream views, to hell with topic A. Here's what we want to talk about. Here's the guest we want to have, and here's what we're going to give you. And well, if it sounds if it I, sounds like you know, there's a coffee percolator, you know, bubbling in the background. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or an air conditioner, yeah. yeah exactly. we, we, it, you know, I, I can't even listen to mainstream talk radio anymore because it's just all kind of the same, and they're usually pushing a political agenda or a political candidate. I feel like I get much more well-rounded information from listening to podcasts.
6: I agree. I agree. Now, I'm, I'm still careful, you know, who I listen to, where I go. I, I mentioned, for instance, um, uh, Adam Curry and John Dvorak's No Agenda program. Um, I listen to that show, you know, infrequently. I have donated before. And uh, Tyler Pittman, of course, you know, one of the longtime friends and, uh, you know, a an on-again, off-again co-host of the program, um, he turned me on to that show a while back. There, there are some weeks where I'll listen to that show and I'll just be like, these guys— are so ahead of the curve. There are some weeks, uh, like this most recent show, where I'll listen to the program and I'll just be like, you know, they're, they're trying to look at the entire Virginia shooting that occurred live on television with Yanker and the, the cameraman being shot, and they're trying to say, oh, there's all this fishy stuff. And it's it's so interesting because they offer, I think, a narrative that is even counter-narrative to Alex Jones and the, and the more popular conspiracy-minded commentators. Yeah,
2: they do. But, yeah. but
6: there are some instances where Curry and Dvorak very much kind of fall in line with that just as well. And so... I don't. I won't go so far as to say that just because of disagreement with somebody on a view, oh, I can never listen to this. I hate this show. You know, they're promoting conspiracist thinking. No, I enjoy the hell out of the show. I think that those guys are the best at what they do, and it's a great show to listen to, whether or not I agree. But I say all that to point out that you know, again, with podcasting, you have access to a wide variety of information, a wide array of topics, and a wider array probably than anything else of opinions. And if you think for a moment that something that you see on a mainstream news station is any less opinionated <laughs> than what you get on these podcasts, you're sadly mistaken. The, 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 I guess the moral of the story is you need to question everything that you hear. And don't go find whatever source, podcast, you know, mainstream radio, talk radio, uh, live television, newspaper, magazine, whatever. Don't find your one source that you think you like and just start saying, okay, This is what I believe. No, it's not. That's what you read, and you're just going to tell people you believe that because you read it and you can regurgitate it during a conversation a week later. Bull. No, think about it and make up your own mind. Don't agree with everybody, okay? That's the most important thing. As soon as you start agreeing completely with somebody that you've been listening to, you've been sold. Congratulations. Welcome to the club that Mm -hmm. 99.99% of Americans are already a part of.
2: Right, it, Micah, I really wanted to get your uh you know we're going to kind of say this for later, but I think it's a good place to talk about this and your idea of especially with this latest shooting uh, with what happened in Virginia, you know we were talking about this in our intro section, and we were talking about how all these I mean not even twenty four hours later, you already had people that were saying it was a false flag, you already had people that were taking apart both of the videos, the one that the guy did himself and then also the one that was filmed by the cameraman. And, you know, you had these people picking it apart. You have people picking apart the, the father and the boyfriend of the, of the uh, girl that was killed uh, and their validity. You know, where do you think that this kind of mentality comes from of this idea of like believing that everything must be a false flag. And, and when I say that, I believe that there are events, specific events that could be. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but you know, on this one, I I don't know. But it's just like everybody just kind of jumps, a lot of people jump to this conclusion in our society now.
6: They do seem to. As far as where the idea comes from, I'm not sure. Um, I've certainly noticed it. Um, I think at times maybe it's warranted that people be skeptical. You know, some of the uh, the arguments that have been raised about uh, the current shooting is uh, the father of the young woman who was, you know, one of the two victims. It, it turns out that um, that he has a background as an actor, and uh, one of the one uh, cur- what, what of the longstanding narratives in relation to uh, these tragic incidents, and then the conspiracist mindset as related to that. Um, tends to be the concept of crisis actors that are brought in after the purported incident. And one of two things has happened. An actual incident occurs. Right. And then, and then the media coverage of it is managed in a way, and crisis actors are brought in to represent the actual family members and those affected, or uh, the entire thing is a quote-unquote false flag. The entire... Uh, you know the the entire tragedy or incident, whatever that may be in a given instance, is actually a hoax, and the crisis actors are there to help perpetrate that. So there, and there may be different variations on those, but those are the two primary narratives that we begin to see. So it comes out that this man had had, uh, I believe, possibly uh, some Broadway experience. The father of the, uh, the, the the
2: television anchor who was actually shot in this incident. That's the first um, I've heard of this. Actually, you saying it now, I haven't heard that before. Yeah.
6: And I don't know that it, it was noticed elsewhere, but I know that uh, during the No Agenda podcast, I think for Thursday of this past week, uh, Adam Curry, while they were doing the, the program, goes to the guy's LinkedIn page and found that information. Now, others may have found that elsewhere, uh, you know, coincidentally, or, or others may have reported on Curry's discovery of that. The, now, that's interesting that, that, you know, that, 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 that this man has that kind of a background, and I know that there was this, uh, this interview during which he appeared. And, and I'll tell you this, honestly— I think that far stranger than any behavior of the father is that of the boyfriend, the secret boyfriend and all this junk about him saying that, you know, he was going to put photographs up online and everything and that he had been right. tasked with adding the images to Facebook and whatnot, but that they've been keeping their relationship secret. His behavior seems stranger to me. Now, let me stop right there because I'm sure some critic out there is going to hear this and say, like Hank's asserts that this was all a false flag.
5: I actually have people
6: do that? It's just the opposite. Let me just be clear. Let me leave no ambiguity whatsoever i do not think that this was a false flag i think that this was a deranged individual he was he was an individual obviously who had been laid off uh, who had been advised by his by his superiors there and co-workers that he would be treated for the apparent mental instability i know that this individual uh, that uh, that was the shooter involved despite tweets and speculation prior to the revelation of the individual uh, you know, where it had been speculated that this was probably going to be a white male and some sort of a, you know, some sort of a conspiracist idiot. Now, I believe that the man was actually uh, African-American. Uh, he also was apparently, he was apparently homosexual and that they said yeah. that uh, throughout, you know, his apartment where he would lived, uh, because, you know, again, all the, a lot of this came out days later. Uh, they, there were a, apparently a lot of paraphernalia and whatnot of a pornographic nature that were in his apartment. Obviously, a person who had some pretty serious problems. Um, that's the the actual narrative. That 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 seems to be what happened. This was the person who apparently was wearing the GoPro and walks up there and shoots these people. And uh, I think that you can get to a point where you become so suspicious of the official narrative, however unsettling or uncomfortable to deal with it actually may be, that uh, you, you you know, in trying to propose an alternate alternative narrative or trying to try and look more deeply at Certain aspects of the existing narrative, you can get so far out there with it that you actually begin to, how would you put this? You almost begin to get into kind of this, 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 this cookie cutter framework through which you, you kind of, or a lens that you filter everything. And the conspiracist mindset. And I want to be clear: it's I think conspiracies absolutely occur, and therefore conspiracy theory is not always unwarranted. Right. And I, want I agree to with fair.
2: that. I agree with that.
6: Yeah be very fair and balanced about this in in, in the way that I word that but I do think that some people, and let's just be fair uh, I think that our buddy Alex Jones down there in Austin, Texas is probably the poster child for this people who, no matter what happens, no matter how little evidence we have, it, it happened five minutes ago We've got we've got thirteen seconds of footage. Let's look at this. Yeah, look, see that? You see that? You see that? False flag. <laughs> and so everything is and I've got I've got some very, very close friends and colleagues in the research community who are very much of that mindset. And I've had them tell me, you know, Micah, you can't even offer any kind of commentary on any of this stuff. You know, anything that we're told we, we don't know what it actually is. Everything's a false flag these days. And I'm amazed at how they'll sit there and just tell me, you know, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. This is all a false flag, dude. All this stuff, none of what we see is what it actually is. And I'm thinking, but what if what we see is exactly what it is? What if what is being reported is, at least by a degree of of, uh, of certainty, a fair degree of certainty, exactly what is, what is you know, being, what, or rather everything that we're being told is exactly as is? Maybe... We have some serious issues we've got to deal with, as far as especially the mental health issue. Can you know, uh, as it concerns guns, and, and, and you know, not just ownership, but more importantly, accessibility to firearms in America. Um, maybe these are real issues that need to be dealt with without having to try and say that there's an inside job being carried out every time we have an incident. And you know, what's really sad is, I on my program, the Grayling Report, I very seldom say any more as it pertains to gun ownership, gun rights. Uh, you know, the gun control issue and all this, I very seldom say any more than I hope this isn't politicized and I don't know that just taking guns off the streets would solve the problem. And you wouldn't believe it. I mean I've had emails from people saying, Okay, Micah, um, I just want to let you know, I've been a long time listener. I'm unsubscribing, not gonna listen to your show anymore. Um, cannot believe that you would advocate gun ownership. And I'm thinking, Whoa, whoa, hold on and I've had to tell <laughs> yeah. these people, I'm like, You have mistaken my discussion of for being advocacy of. Now, In truth, I don't think that really uh, taking guns off the street is necessarily the best idea for a a number of reasons. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the way that America uh, not only geographically is located and and a lot of the issues with smuggling of firearms into our country – Okay, Because if we take weapons off the streets, I'm afraid that there are going to be a lot more avenues through which weapons can come back into the country and can be used by those who are more than willing to acquire a weapon illegally in order to break law if that's their intention to begin with. Um, I've said this for years, and I've been accused of being uneducated on the gun rights issue. But if I'm, if I'm uneducated, why do I talk about things like that? Why have I looked into the possibility of whether or not there is indeed, and, and, and I'm going to tell you there absolutely is, statistical data that shows that in countries where there are not guns Uh, Available to the public that there are are lesser incidents of violent crime. That's absolutely true, but I think that there are cultural differences that, in part, if not in total, may account for some of that, which are in part due to size and then are also in part due to things like I've already aforementioned, which involves the accessibility, okay, from America and its borders with other countries in terms of being able to have access to illegal firearms trade and smuggling. Uh, You see, Mike, I think
2: think some of this stuff. I think the, our media maybe greatly inflates these incidents, and certainly you can almost look at it like a like a graph or a chart of how the false flag claims and the rise of the twenty four hour news cycle has kind of just come up with each other. Because I no, think that they have- yeah, I think that they. I think that they complement each other in a way because most of the time in these 24-hour news cycles, the news is probably getting things wrong in the in the name of being there as it happens. So you're not getting the full story.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. And, that, that other- and we, we talked right. about this a little bit in the intro about how um, even if, you know, say, say the incident false. itself is, is not staged so it's not a false flag, that doesn't mean that the media doesn't have an agenda that they're you know, they're pushing it. or spinning or that somebody behind the media isn't or that they're, you know, that they're not capitalizing off of it for for their sake.
6: Oh, absolutely. Even if that that agenda, so to speak, is is no more than that. They're just trying to get as much, you know, get as get as much viewership and, and you know, uh, increase their their ratings as much as possible, which I mean, again, you have to remember that while they're trying to be journalists, it is an industry. It is the news media is an industry. Especially in America. And there is a competition, as with any market, between the media agencies. And there is thus a political spin that is heavily, heavily, heavily influential on these different media agencies, even those which claim to be fair and balanced.
4: Right. Well, and, and absolutely. And there's there's all kinds of pressures that we're not aware of that they're put under yeah, as reporters and writers and, and whatnot. But- Certainly.
6: Yeah, and, and and there are some who also said that there's an undeniable connection between you know the way the media is reported and also intelligence agencies who have, and this may sound conspiratorial in its own right, but I mean this has been discussed for years, the the, the fact that there are aspects of what occurs and what appears in the news that are of interest to intelligence agencies, uh, as it relates to international affairs, especially after the Second World War, we can look back at some of the great claims of flying saucer sightings and whatnot uh, that appeared in in news sources as. You know, well-known and, and, and widely publicized, as the New York Times. And looking back, some commentators have said it may very well have been the case that these were put in prominent news uh, newspapers, these kinds of reports and claims of such, for purposes of directly communicating to international uh, agencies, probably KGB in this case. Uh, The kinds of things that we want them to read so that they think that America has super weapons that we're developing based on German technology, you know. And that's just one example. But again, you know, just to be be very brief about it, come back to the idea of false flags. uh, I am concerned, first of all, about the gun issue in America. We have an incredible number of, of shooting incidents that seem to involve unhinged individuals that are absolutely using the, the weapon of, of choice, the preferential weapon of choice, and there's no question about that. It, it is the gun. There are other acts of terror that are carried out, and I'd call them terror, at least on the home front, although not by the FBI definition perhaps, in the sense that these are acts that are committed by people who, like in Virginia with the television anchor shooting, are going for a shooting that will go down in infamy. They are trying to attain maximum impact with what they They (coughs) want.
4: Absolutely, yeah. Using fear for their agenda, that's that's
6: real terrorism. Is that any different, I should say, by the way, from what ISIS is doing with videos? Hello, and often strangely edited and obviously uh, meticulously edited at times, videos that depict these very gory but also very dramatic beheadings and things. That's the difference between just an incident, a shooting incident, you know, somebody walks out on a street corner, flips somebody else off, they get angry, guys packing heat, opens fire, shoots somebody. Nothing dramatic about that. That's what we call life. That's the everyday. And then we have these incidents where people are for maximum effect employing drama for purpose of trying to instill fear in people. There's an effect that they're trying to achieve and it's very similar, whether we see that as in terms of the homegrown incidents that involve gun violence or we're seeing terror overseas. But Again, the thing is, is we've got a very complex, a very, very, very complex issue here. Fareed Zakaria, I think writing for, uh, it wasn't Time magazine, I'm not sure w- which he'd written for, maybe, uh, no, I don't want to cite the source if I can't remember, but I was reading the article just the other day, it was from 2012. He's talking in the article about, look, you know what, statistics show countries without guns have fewer incidents that involve violence like this. He says what we have is not a complex problem, what we have is a lack of of uh, you know basically cojones we need people who are who are brave enough to say you know we got to get the guns off the street in a country like america i'm not convinced that necessarily that is addressing the mental health issue it seems to be driving these horrific incidents where people are essentially involving themselves in acts of terror and yet i've been castigated by people who say you're just trying to promote a gun uh, second amendment far right conservative gun owning agenda that is absolutely not it i'm trying to say hey guys We've got a problem we've got to address. And if anything, we may need tighter regulation. Maybe we need biometric locks and whatnot that would prevent. Maybe we need further background checks and maybe waiting periods that would prevent a person from being able to say, I'm pissed and I'm going to go kill somebody. I'm going to go buy a gun right. and take it that same day. We, we obviously have to address this. But anyway, that's that's the most heated discussion going on right now. And I, I bring that to the forefront only in order to say that it shows how hot and how how absolutely devastatingly politicized these arguments become. And I think, really, that that diversity of opinion, while a good thing, kind of spearheads in a way this, oh, you're wrong because you're crazy. Oh, no, you're wrong because you're the left or you're right. And every person seems to kind of, they they villainize anyone who disagrees with them. And it becomes kind of like, see if you follow me, guys, pro wrestling, okay? <laughs> There's your good guy that you're 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 rooting for, and then there's the NWO. Funny if you remember back in the old days, was it WWF that had the NWO and Hulk Hogan and the guys joined it? Right, right, right. You know, they actually had this group of like bad boy wrestlers that come out and call themselves what the NWO. It's the perfect <laughs> analogy. The perfect analogy. It's like pro wrestling. The whole thing's staged. We all know the whole thing's staged, but people are they're there to to root for the team that they think that they like the best and whoever is opposite of that is the enemy. And that seems to be very much what we have with the false flag narrative in America today, that everything is staged and that we are the good guys and everybody else is the enemy because we know it is staged just like the pro wrestling thing. And so when these debates become extremely politicized like this and people don't say, look, let's, let's step back and let's actually st- statistically, scientifically try and look at the problems. If they just say he said this, therefore he's the enemy. I think that that really contributes a lot to the problem that kind of leads to this.
2: Well, Micah, you know, one thing that I've always, I've come to to think about is, let's take Newtown, for instance. Let's take Sandy Hook. Let's say just that that was a false flag. A lot of people go back on all of these, and they kind of put their own ideological position, their own political position, and they say it's all about gun control. But what if, for a moment, this isn't being pulled off, if these are false flags, because it's about gun control, but because it's probably about this idea of a strategy of tension, of just keeping people in fear. Because it seems like the gun control thing, is just it just goes around in circles. Nothing ever really does get solved. Nothing ever really does happen. So, to me, it just seems like it's, it's, there's something else. It's like a psychological warfare, almost.
6: Well, that's a good point in its own right because i would say this if guns really are so much a problem that they need to be taken off the streets and if the congress ever deemed that i would i might disagree with that um not not on the grounds of being you know a staunch supporter of the second amendment you know but although you know, <laughs> Mulan lobby. Mulan lobby. <laughs> well you know i uh, want well, to be clear you know i do support the constitution and i think i we, do you know, too if that's going to be the framework for what we present you know as uh, our, our beliefs, values, and the rule of law in the country that we call the United States of America, uh, then I say that we should abide by that Constitution and not try and, 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 and argue its irrelevance. Um, I think, though, that if the Congress you know, ever were to deem the gun issue one that could be solved by uh, you know, the removal of, of, of weapons— um, like many Americans, we would have to abide by what the Congress says, although I may disagree and some may disagree extremely strongly on that point. The reason I want to be clear in saying that I have doubts about that is because I think that, again, our positioning in relation to our proximity to other countries, our known uh, relationship, not in terms of an actual like a trade agreement or anything like that, but the absolute undeniable Illegal weapons trade that occurs, and the smuggling of weapons into this country from Mexico, which we probably, in many instances, have you know supplied anyhow, which is a whole right. different conversation. Uh, but you know, we we look at the way that you know our country is very different from smaller European countries that have you know successfully managed to ban firearm weapons. Uh, our culture is very different from the culture of land ownership and whatnot, and where you know again, people are not going to own a weapon unless they're going to be going hunting. But there's a very stringent System that one must go through in order to be able to main or, or in order to obtain a weapon, and it's only if they own land that they can hunt on. You know, in America it's very different. We have national parks, we have you know hunting land, we have a, you know private property. We've got a lot of different situations that are far more conducive. Uh, you know, in terms of people who want to be uh, sportsmen and who want to own firearms for those kinds of things. <clears throat> so it's going to be a much more complex situation. Some may say it's not. But you don't have to say you're either pro or, or anti-gun in order to recognize that this is a much more complex situation. And yet again, yes, we're not dealing with the mental health issue. We're not dealing with a lot of the issues that I think are really the underlying provoking factors with the gun violence problem that we have here. And maybe, frankly, as Ron Paul and some people have said, I quote him again not just to say I'm a big-time libertarian, but he's one that comes to mind of many who have said we also seem to have a culture of violence here, maybe video games, films. And other kinds of things have influenced that. What's interesting is that if there is a problem, you'd think that people would be more proactive in trying to solve it. Whatever our resolution is, let's try and come together, meet in the middle if we have to, and find the best solution to this problem. And, you know, time and time again, I see less and less being done. People just want to wail, you know, bewail and moan. You know, our president, commander-in-chief, and if you're an American, I feel that, you know, whether you agree or disagree with your president, you should support your president. And I do. President Barack Obama, you know, support him full, uh, you know completely. But my issue is, uh, you know, certain things that he says I simply disagree with on ideological terms, like comparing gun violence to terrorism and to say that more people are killed by gun violence in America, or rather that, that gun violence, I think, as he put it most recently following the Virginia shooting – uh, gun violence is more dangerous to us than terrorism. Yeah, I think that, I think that uh, gun violence in total absolutely is because there are more shooting incidents that occur in America every day, but I think that to say that, you know, to try and first of all compare it to terrorism seems strange, and second of all to say that, you know, we are at greater risk of, of crazy people gaining access to a firearm than we are to terrorists, you know, knowing what terrorists want to do. There may be statistically, you know, in terms of the greater prevalence of gun violence, Uh, related incidents in the United States, some merit to that. But, you know, I have problems, I think, fundamentally with that comparison to terrorism overseas. It's just a strange thing to say. While we should note the similarities, you know, incident for incident. But, you know, the thing is, is that I can disagree on certain points and certain politicization, and I think that's the big issue, is using those kind of terms and those kind of comparisons for purposes of further politicizing the issue while really doing nothing about it. And you're right, Adam, it seems that more and more, people will make these very overtly politicized statements. Nothing's really being done. You know, no one's really putting this to a vote. Uh, you know, w- at what point do we actually try and make a proactive change to address these issues? And and finally, the question comes to mind, I guess, as you kind of elucidated there, Adam, earlier, if nothing's being done but we're reporting on this, on this 24-hour news cycle with our with our mainstream media agencies, politicians are going to debate it but not really do anything then right. what purpose is this debate really serving is it really just keeping us all on edge is it really keeping us at each other's throats yeah. is it really just keeping people like me um on the fecal roster of people who support you know anti-gun legislation because whether or not it's truly accurate uh, they perceive me as being uh, you know some sort of a You know, some sort of a, you know, a militia member, you know, because... And that's the thing. This is the sad thing. You guys live down here in the South. You know, you guys are in Nashville. I'm in Asheville. Um, There is this attitude that I've encountered that by virtue of being a man who lives in the southern, uh, the southeastern United States, you must be of this ideology. I constantly have people say, well, Micah, because you live in South Carolina... And I have to correct him. I'm like, guys, I live in Asheville. It's one of the most liberal towns <laughs> in North Carolina, so you at least get the state right. Almost every interview I go on, people are like, you're, now, Micah, you're in you're in South Carolina, and so what do you think about the Confederate? Well, I don't think about the Confederate flag in South Carolina, at least because I don't live in South Carolina. You it know? seems
2: like Scotty so, said that on the show, like the one it, he interviewed it, me last week. Yeah. The other night, yeah, on his show, he yeah.
6: even said, you know, even Scotty, bless his heart, can, cannot, you know, we're seeing no one, no one seems to realize I live in North Carolina. Asheville is in North Carolina, <laughs> folks, North <laughs> Carolina. And so, but the, I bring that point up because there's a lot of stereotyping about, you know, well, you're a Southerner, therefore you must be, you know, a far right. Uh, you know you must have a you must have a you know a confederate flag you know waving up above the bunker and you must you know have
2: you got your, your guns own... and your dogs and, your... Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so thinking, you and know, i'm thinking that.
3: sounds like the, a good, good
6: home dad, to me i just tell i want to say to people i wish you could spit. i've been called a hillbilly with a website i mean and i don't just mean to complain the point is to uh, to further you know highlight the fact that there are a lot of erroneous fallacious attitudes that are based on old stereotypes that people have about others in different parts of the country. And just to say that we live in the south doesn't mean that oh well you just you just want guns on the streets because you know you don't want them to take your guns away. You don't want to take them. no that's not how we are. And I realize and I recognize and I maintain that there's a broad problem that we have to address but we've got to find a sensible solution to it.
2: There, there's plenty of people that don't want their guns taken away. You know, Rob here, he's from Michigan. I'm sure there's people up there and they don't <laughs> Oh it. Do yeah, yeah. There's a hunting culture <laughs> up there.
4: We're as know? far north as you can get. And...
2: Right.
6: And see, in fairness, that's the whole thing is that in a country uh, as large as America, you know, with as much tradition that involves whether or not you're an advocate of it or you like it, let's just be realistic. You know, uh, we, we have... Throughout all parts of this country, Uh, you know, a lot of our heritage that is based on sportsman activities, outdoor activities and whatnot that do involve responsible use, responsible use of firearms. I personally am beginning to think, although I know that a lot of my friends who are of the more conservative mindset would disagree, I am beginning to think that really if we want to be responsible about firearm use, we need to be responsible, more responsible than we have been about firearm sale, firearm acquisition. And also the maintenance and handling, and maybe even transportation, also of firearms, which is why I've looked into some of these things along the lines of biometric locking systems and whatnot that would make it more difficult for an individual to obtain a weapon secondhand and access that if they have especially ill intent. Because what got me thinking about this is I looked at, like for instance, Holmes, you know, out there, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Joker, you know, the, the first of, sadly, you know, a couple of these movie theater shootings and whatnot that have occurred you know, this guy James Holmes you know purchased a couple of these weapons you know within a very short amount of time of one another and bought large amounts of ammunition online and i'm thinking you know this should have been a red flag had it been properly monitored there obviously need to be circumstances where somebody just randomly starts buying guns and picking up ammo online in large quantities this guy doesn't look like he's necessarily wanting to go hunting with all this you know there even needs to be a procedure through which a person can make those purchases Or there need to be, and this is where things get really shaky, and I want to be very clear about this, there need to be better and more stringent methods of observing and monitoring the way that these purchases are made. But that makes me even uncomfortable because I'm not advocating greater surveillance than what we already have. Right. And and see, that's something that I'm uncomfortable with. I've wondered if there isn't a way that some sort of a publicly maintained uh, organization or agency could monitor... The sale, but see, here's the thing: there are already government agencies that monitor purchase and sale of firearms and things. So, anyway, not to completely allow that to just overtake the conversation, but these are obviously some issues. And guys, as it comes to this weird kind of a conspiracist mindset in America and the whole notion of false flags and whatnot, it's it's going to be impossible to differentiate the firearms issue from those false flag attacks because of the number of violent shootings that are the incidents that cause the conspiracist minded individuals to look at it and say this. This is wrong. There's something weird here. There's something, well, there, in many of those instances, are a lot of problems. Well, and There are a lot of things wrong. Well,
2: but here's we what, I, what I think, Micah. I, I think that there have been false flag events. Uh, I have suspicion about a few of them. But I think now what has happened is that you have the copycat effect to where you really cannot tell the difference between the two. And I I that, that would be part of that strategy of tension Like, you know, you had the guy You had a guy on I haven't actually listened to this show mm-hmm. But uh, the guy talked about Operation Gladio And, you yeah. know, that was part of their, their motivation That's exactly what they wanted to do It really wasn't about a gun control issue or anything It was just this idea of strategy of tension Keeping everybody on their toes Keeping everybody scared And everybody at each other's throats Like a divide and conquer tactic almost
6: Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up, by the way. That was Paul Williams' book, Operation Gladio. Um, I have a copy of the book right here in the studio with me. Uh, had him on the show. Paul found to be uh, a very credible journalist, also a former FBI informant, a man who really knows a lot about this, and a man who's been willing to put his personal reputation aside in order to discuss and provide meaningful commentary on these issues. Uh, With Gladio and the notion of there being you know, a secret, what we might call a militarized force, if not an army, although I think army is the term that uh, Williams used, uh, that's operated under NATO. Uh, absolutely. And and he more specifically links that to a, a couple of specific incidents where there were individuals who were blamed for, uh, you know, bombings uh, so as to kind of cover uh, various other activities that were occurring concomitant with this. Right. Um, you know, again, as discussed in that book, and and uh, as he discussed on the program when he came on, you guys should have Paul on the show. By the way, it's it's a wonderful uh, book, although unsettling. This seems to outline the historical precedent for actual false flags. Many cite, for instance, the burning the Reichstag. You know, um, which which was instrumental in in Hitler obtaining power. Although it is still actually, and this is to be, you know, fair and. And and realistic with our interpretation of history, it is still disputed whether that was truly a false flag. The idea that it was not an arson and, and that you know Hitler and his you know fellows actually were behind this, so that it would you know create create the political situation that was conducive to him obtaining power.
2: Yeah. There's some debate after, there, I think. Yeah, some
6: debate. There is some debate, and with some of these instances, there is debate. But the Gladio thing seems to be a very concrete. Um, Case to be made for an actual subversive operation that was carried out. Perhaps one of the best um, evidences of this sort of a thing. Uh, some would also cite uh, Operation Northwoods, but that was a proposed plan; it never actually was carried out. So correct. far as we know, correct. So yeah. I think I think that when we want to try and find actual historical precedent, Gladio is one of the best examples that I've come across, and it does, Adam, you're right, present historical precedent for actual false flags, but I think that the problem is that, as Alex Jones and some others have done, they see that there's a historical precedent, and then they say, okay, well, you know what then? That means that if it has happened, if it can happen, it will happen, it does happen in every incident. Boston Marathon bombing. Come on, these Sarnayev guys, they didn't really do this. This was an inside job. Everything CIA. And I've got friends in the academic community who tell me that. They say there are aspects of this that seem to scream CIA, FBI. Guys, that may be a possibility. I can't tell you it's not. I'm not an intelligence informant nor am I an operative. I have my
2: I own expert. I have my own ideas of what happened there. But yeah. Yeah. Well, but you
6: know, again, I'm just I'm just here to say whether or not that is evidence of, of inside jobs, false flags, you know, call it what you want. The problem is, as you said, Adam, that people look at the historical precedent for false flags and they try to apply that as a narrative approach to every incident that occurs. Let no single tragedy go to waste if it is something that can be more positively uh, used to further our cause, which is the cause, the notion that they, put up your air quotes, are out to get us. And it has become troublesome in America. There may be, and I suspect that there are intelligence agencies that are working behind the scenes and carrying out any number of and all manner of different operations that are well Uh, kept from the public but i'm going to tell you right now those kind of things aren't the kind of things that we're going to be seen and made a spectacle of in the in the in the news every single day and to try and assert that the kinds of tragedies that we do see happening especially in relation to gun violence although of course boston marathon didn't involve guns it involved pressure cooker bombs you know that again to me is a very important point that needs to be made you know We can talk about the gun issue because that's the most prevalent concern, but there are a lot of modalities through which people will enact terror if they so choose to do so. But, you know, we also have to be careful in how we label these incidents and how we perceive them. The problem, to me, greatest among them being that we aren't looking at this in a unified way and saying we've got people, we've got problems, we've got to deal with it. You know, I I would say that probably a little less than half of all Americans, and I don't base this on any poll numbers I've looked at. This is a generalization. I should look at it, though. But I would I would guess that a little less than half of all Americans probably agree that most of all these terror acts and, uh, and, and and violence incidents probably are false flags or inside jobs. And they really think that the government's out to get us. And that's yeah a little concerning to me.
2: Yeah, it's like where you draw the line of what's reality and what isn't. Uh, it's becoming more and more blurred, I think.
6: But it goes both ways. And we need to be able to say, you know, in most incidents, maybe it's not. But when there is precedent for a problem, let's not dismiss those, which is I see the problem being, you know, especially on the on the big S skeptic side of things that nothing could possibly be. Our government would never do this. And, you know, and, and this is where the term conspiracy theorist becomes weaponized. People who even suppose that maybe there is anything more going on in those minority of incidents that do seem to warrant further inquiry, even those are are shut down. Where you you know by people who you see have become of a mindset that is so ideological in its skepticism that they are now actually biased and therefore they're really not presenting a fair argument themselves, or let alone allowing themselves to see the potential. You know they've they've effectively brainwashed themselves. Mm-hmm. So you can be so far out there with your with your you believe everything's a false flag, and you can also be so close minded with your skepticism that you limit your ability to look at these issues and say okay. Here's what's really going on based on actual data, not my predisposed notions about what may have happened.
2: Well, Michael, let's talk about something a little more serious. Uh-huh. Let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about <laughs> Bigfoot. Rob's a big Bigfoot fan, he loves it.
4: I uh, am. Yeah. <laughs> hey,
5: every,
4: every time I go on a road trip I look I stare out the window the whole time just in case. <laughs>
2: Just in case. Just in case. (laughs) It's probably just Luke out sunbathing. (laughs) I'm I'm not even that hairy, dude. That
3: doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I don't sunbathe. I'm naturally bronzed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's Bigfoot, man. Uh, But uh, you've been looking at uh, something you talked about on the show. was Patterson Gimlin film. And you kind of have your own ideas of what's going on there. And that's the film that, you know, the 1967 film that shows the supposed female Bigfoot. And uh, mm-hmm. do you, what do you think about that, Mike? Do you think that that was a hoax?
6: Well, that's a funny uh, discussion. Uh, because with, with the Patterson footage, to be very clear, I have advocated that uh, people who are interested in the study of Bigfoot just try and... <laughs> Leave the Patterson film out of the discussion. It looks great. Um, I find that a lot of people say that it looks fake because I think that rather than saying it actually looks fake, uh, they feel that it's impossible that there could be a creature like a Bigfoot. Therefore, if there couldn't, no, if there could not be a creature like Bigfoot, what we see in that film, therefore, looks like a man in an ape suit. And that's not really a good skeptical interpretation of what's happening to me. The good skeptical interpretation would, as I've tried to do, uh, be to look at the primatological evidence, you know, anatomically and otherwise, and also look at the, uh, the narrative uh, as far as, you know, how the film was obtained, where it was obtained, uh, you know, the background and the information that we do have about those who made the film. What I've found is that um, anatomically, although this has been disputed, and we can talk about this a little more in depth, anatomically, there are aspects of the creature as depicted in the film that don't necessarily add up, Right. despite looking extremely good. And let's just be clear, I even agree, I think the film looks great, but there are a number of issues with the anatomy. Uh, the three primary points are the fact that there's a, what appears to be a sagittal crest on the top of the head, but in conjunction with that, we also have breasts. The sagittal crest, the pointed you know, portion on the upper portion of the skull is a characteristic that is only in the great apes seen among the male members of the species. Among the males, right, right. Which is interesting because if it's got breasts, that seems fairly inconsistent. And then there's also a ratio between footprint length, distance between the footprints, i.e. stride, and the estimated height. Uh, primatologist John Napier pointed out that none of these characteristics seem to come together in a way that seemed to credibly support the height of the creature or the stride. He said, that he, he said everything indicated that the stride was... Was exaggerated, and that this was a much smaller person, i.e., a regular sized man, trying to exaggerate his movement so that the footprints would appear to be uh, spaced wider apart uh, than they actually were, which would be indicative of, of course, a larger creature that had not existed. So, all these points taken into consideration, you know, I look at that as in, in terms of anatomical uh, evidence as being, or primatological, maybe we'll say, because I think an anatomical we really would only be able to look at the anatomy of the thing if we had maybe a specimen. We don't have that. We can observe what we see in the film and try and make judgments based thereupon. But uh, primatological evidence, which is looking at what we know of the physiology of known great ape species and comparing that with this potential new addition to the great ape species of North America that we see here in this film, uh, you know, the comparisons don't seem to add up. Uh, further problems that are... Uh, And have been brought to the table over the years of the fact that, you know, the film was supposedly made on one particular date, which was a Friday. But the issue is is that, you know, if they had the film, they being Patterson, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin by Monday, which actually we know that they apparently did. uh, They would have had to have found a film laboratory that would that would actually process the film for them over the weekend, which at that time in that location, we know, uh, would not have been uh, possible Hmm. Patterson countered and said that a private lab actually was the laboratory that processed the film for them, that, that, that actually uh, uh, you know, produced the film so that they would be able to have it by Monday. But the problem with that, of course, is that uh, the, the researchers who, based on what Patterson told them, I think one of them being uh, Peter Byrne, a former British big game hunter and one of the uh, best-known Bigfoot researchers of the last 50 years – Uh, Peter Byrne and others had found they couldn't find the private lab that supposedly had processed the film for uh, Patterson and Gimlin, which led some of those researchers who were still advocates of the the film's authenticity to believe that maybe the film had been made on a day separate from the date which Gimlin and Patterson claimed it had been made, which brings up another question. Why would they lie about the date that the film had been made? Now, all the aforementioned to me really casts enough doubt on the film's authenticity to say that... No matter how good it looks, this is never going to be something ever that is going to be convincing evidence. It may be real for all you or I know, but it's never going to be something that will be convincing evidence, so we need to move on and just go forward in trying to find good evidence. So the the point here is not to try and debunk the film so much as to try and draw attention away from it as evidence that will be used in the pro-Bigfoot argument, because it's not going to ever convince the skeptics. And frankly, again, I'm not convinced either. (laughs) Now, the interesting thing about that, though, I'll point out, is that there have been a lot of Bigfoot advocates over the years who have looked at this film. And they've said, you know, this just looks too good. This looks too good. The, the, The skeptics, of course, have said, but you see, we know how it was made. Well, interestingly, there are varieties of different opinions on how the film was made. And interestingly, those have been lumped together over the years in an effort to try and create one kind of a unifying narrative about the secret truth behind the Patterson Gimlin film you know uh, Bob Hieronymus the retired Pepsi bottler from uh, Yakima Washington who came forward a few years ago and claimed to have been the man in the suit said that the suit was made of horse hair or horse hide rather and that Patterson made it himself and he said it stunk when he wore it because it was (laughs) hot out there that afternoon and he's wearing this horse hide okay but then what's interesting is that Cal Corf and I think Bob uh, or Greg Long uh, wrote a book a few years ago about this where they said that Philip Morris, the costume maker from Charlotte, North Carolina, had actually supplied the suit, which Morris, right. to this day, yeah, he right. maintains, I sold him the suit. I, yep, that was me. Yep.
2: Okay. You so, know what's yep, interesting from- about that, Mike, is that this guy claims that he sold the suit to these guys. And this is one of the interesting contradictions, one of the many contradictions, I think, with this movie of this little film is that he says he claimed he claims he sold the suit but yet you have had people that are uh d- good um makeup artists in their field uh creature designers in hollywood that say they could never replicate it it's like yeah. so which which is true you know
6: um, my my gut tells me that philip morris didn't sell him that suit i think philip morris yeah. was trying to cash in on the uh, he may have sold somebody a suit and, and mistaken it for being Patterson, but that that right. what we, that film is not a Philip Morris costume. I don't think Philip is. You know, I won't say that he's being dishonest. I'm going to say I think he's, un, he's he's inaccurate in that in that claim. Now, uh, the authors of the aforementioned book had tried to you know weave those two narratives together by saying that the costume was purchased from Philip Morris, but that it was augmented. And that the long the arms were made to look longer by extensions that were made by Patterson, Patterson himself, and that the the uh, breasts were added to the suit as well, and that these additions were what were made from horsehide by Patterson that were added to an existing suit. Where we begin to strain credulity with trying to you know weave these two separate stories together. But what's funny is coming back around to the Hollywood special effects industry. There's a third narrative that claims that many in the know have known all along that John Chambers had made the damn suit, which is funny because. At some point, you begin to realize that somewhere in the skeptic camp, somebody has been, and probably in likelihood, several somebodies, have been lying. And what's Mm -hmm. hilarious to me is that no one ever wants to, when they propose a, a skeptical solution to the problem, nobody ever tries to hold those who are claiming the skeptical solution, you know, to what they're saying and to look at the veracity of those claims. They just say, yep, well, now it's been solved. It was a guy in a suit. Which guy in a suit? Which guy made the suit? Was the suit made by this dude or was it made by Patterson? And was it fake fur or was it horsehide? When you see that the skeptical narratives can't even match, you realize that there's obviously just as much room for bunk in the skeptical narrative. And you've got to be equally skeptical of the skeptics who are going to present you with multiple inconsistent skeptical narratives that don't add up. That's another issue with this film. The fact that there is so much debate, again, brings us back to my original point. There's never going to be a consensus on that film. We need to leave that alone and go forward. If we want to try and prove this right. whisper, Bigfoot, right. we've got to find better evidence. That film ain't it.
2: Right. Rob, you got anything to add to that since you're the resident oh. cryptid expert <laughs> here?
4: <laughs> no, I actually just learned a whole lot of stuff. Like I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Patterson-Gimlin film, but I guess not. Hmm.
2: Interesting.
6: I have that effect on people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mike, I want to ask you about the Cash Landrum affair. You had a very interesting interview with somebody, and I I think that this goes into what we're talking about with skepticism as well. You know, this is one of the most interesting UFO contacts that uh, has never really been effectively explained or effectively disproven. Yeah, what are you kind of your feelings on that? Well, we we'll go first of all. I guess what is the Cash Landrum affair? What happened there? Sure.
6: Yeah, we can kind of give a background. I believe it was uh, December of nineteen eighty. Yep. And uh, we we had the the two primary witnesses, Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum, but Vicky's grandson was in the car with them, and they were traveling along uh, near Dayton, Texas. I believe was the town, and they were coming back from dinner, and ahead of them there was a uh, this area, uh, a long stretch of two lane highway. <clears throat> Where, uh, ahead of them, there were there were pine trees, I believe, on either side of the road, and they could see a bright light in the distance. Um, as Cash and uh, Landrum were driving along, Betty Cash was actually driving the vehicle. They come up on this light, and it's extremely, extremely bright. And it's so bright, in fact, that they stop the car, and they're seeing this light hovering in, in, the, in, in front of them. Um, the... One of the early descriptions was was, was likened to being uh, balloon-like in the way that the object seemed to be suspended over the road. Betty Cash got out of the car to observe. Um, some reports say that, that she and Vicky and possibly Colby Landrum, the grandson, also got out of the car, but we know that Betty seems to have spent the most time out of the car. And the women kind of began to interpret this object that they were seeing in front of them as being something that was... Uh, it was almost like a religious kind of an experience. Vicki Landerman said, I thought the world was ending. I thought that this was, you know, the, the end of time. Now, as they're observing, what they claim is that uh, they begin to hear helicopters and that, uh, you know, more than 20 what appear to be black Chinook helicopters appear and they escort the object away as it begins to drift away over the trees and that periodically as they were driving home, they were able to continue to see this light. But Betty, as she was getting back into the car, she reaches for the handle, and it burns her hand. That's how hot it was, and that she had to use her coat to be able to open the car so that she could get back in. And despite being December, that this object was producing enough light that it actually felt warm outside, and it lit up the, the you know the area like it was daytime. That's how bright this thing was. And they get home, and the story goes that um, they all began to suffer effects. They all began to feel a little sick, but Betty Cashin seemed to be the most affected by this. And... Um, essentially cash and landrum they uh, they contacted i think john Schusler, you know who of course was uh, a mufon researcher who uh, very 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 um famously investigated this case but they had also gone to the nearby air force base and had uh, hoped to be able to seek recompense for the uh what they believe were health effects that they sustained but the air force said that they had no aircraft in that area at that time uh, subsequent investigations actually found that there weren't that many black helicopters anywhere, and that especially around the time of Christmas, in likelihood there wouldn't have been any kind of an operation being carried out. It certainly couldn't get any kind of verification from the Air Force uh, over the over the course of their lives. Uh, uh, Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum suffered various health effects. Betty Cash battled cancer for a number of years, and some suspected, including the witnesses themselves, that perhaps their interaction with or proximity to that object on the evening in question may have actually lent to some of the negative health effects that they sustained. So it's, it's a pretty difficult case to try and deal with. And and many have looked at it as being, you know, one of the most intriguing and perhaps one of the best, uh, UFO, uh, cases of all time. Uh, whereas I think, uh, you know, certain others have, have tried to say that this, uh, this whole thing was just in, 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 you know, in essence, just a, a big hoax. And, and I really began to take issue with the idea that it was a hoax uh, recently because i'd gone over to the website of a fellow who i've i met once and you know he and i have corresponded some over the years just as well we have publicly disagreed uh and that led to an actual interview with the individual in question on the popular Paracast podcast the individual in question is robert schaefer to give a bit of a background on schaefer i like bob he's extremely skeptical in terms of his relations uh you know his attitudes about ufos but bob is a um He's a science writer. He's a skeptic. He's something of a protege of uh, Philip Class. Okay, and also, and also as a hobbyist, he is an opera singer. Um, a lot of people don't know that about Bob. Um, Bob, I invited him on the Grailian Report, uh, in fact, and he agreed that you know at some point, anytime you want to line up an interview, I'll come on. And I, I still want to do that. We just haven't lined it up, and that was more than a year ago. Last time that we corresponded, but you know, I'd hope to have Bob Schaefer on the program. His website, <coughs> Bad UFOs, and at that website. He uh, had acknowledged that at one time, this seemed like one of the best UFO cases that we had. And he says, and now it's seeming more and more like these women made this entire story up. There was no, you know, we we can't account for where these helicopters would have come from. Nobody that we know of had that many black helicopters or Chinooks at that time. Nobody at that time would have been operating, you know, during the Christmas holiday. The Air Force themselves uh, wouldn't acknowledge this. They couldn't even seem to remember the exact location of where the incident had occurred um, and furthermore, there were some, not Bob Schaefer, by the way, I want to be clear. He didn't say this, but there was another individual who posting on the website claimed that it seemed likely that Betty cash, in order to make herself seem sick, had drank household cleaners and had laid under a heat lamp with holes poked in a piece of cardboard that she laid over her body to make, <laughs> to give appearance that she had been uh, exposed to some kind of radiation. Why would dammed.
2: somebody do that though? That's that's the that's the
5: question. <laughs> that's beyond What's crazy. Th-
6: a lot of the skeptical information and let me just be clear, there is there are a number of UFO reports over the years that uh, have involved individuals who have claimed to have been uh, burned. But when I say burned maybe not by heat, it may have been some form of non ionizing radiation, maybe even UV, that caused a photochemical uh, you know, response on, it, similar to a sunburn. Let's just you know leave the the, the, the jargon aside. The photochemical um, uh, effect that I'm talking about here is essentially the exact same thing. If you stand out in the sun too long and you're exposed to UV radiation, you're going to cause a sunburn. You know, as some people have had sunburn like effects, as did Betty Cash, and as have a few other. Uh, individuals, there's the famous Mishalak case, Stefan Michelac uh, you know from Canada who had also uh, had these strange burns over his right. body that seemed intermittent would come and go, he was accused of the same sort of tomfoolery that skeptics over on Bob's site were accusing Betty Cash and conveniently after Betty and Vicky are both dead and can no longer defend themselves and so I found the website that they had been sourcing for some of this information had been a blog called uh, Blue Blurry Lines that's mo- uh, moderated by a guy named Kirk Collins so I contacted Kurt, and I found out that Kurt's involved with the group of researchers, friends of mine, a lot of them, that were involved with debunking the Roswell Slides. This is what's called the Roswell Slides Research Group, kind of spearheaded by um, Paul Kimball, good friend of mine, but Greg Bishop, Nick Redfern, and a few others who also. Lance Moody uh, are a number of the researchers, many of them skeptical, some believers that are involved. Kurt had been working some with them, and so I asked Kurt to come on the show, and we did a very lengthy uh, interview where we talked about this, and some of the things that we found out about the Cashlandrum incident that were interesting were as follows. First, it's always been reported that it was a diamond-shaped object with flames shooting out of the bottom, but it seems that among the early descriptions of the object, the only one who described it as being triangle-shaped had been Colby, who presumably was in the car most of the time and probably also in the back seat. Uh, Betty, who had gotten out of the car, they had only described it as being a very bright light that actually, you know, literally made it difficult to discern any further details, apart from that extremely bright light. Although they described it as being, in terms of its movement, as almost balloon-like. Okay, that's important to to to, uh, keep in mind. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, It was also said that nobody but them heard or saw these. Uh, helicopters. We know for a fact, actually, that there was a police detective in the area who, along with his wife, said that they'd seen and heard the helicopters the same night. That there, There's anecdotal information that suggests that there were others who had also seen helicopters, but that can't be confirmed, at least right now. Um, the MUFON case file apparently is sealed. Uh, we're having a hard time trying to even locate that. Kirk Collins, I know, uh, had told me he was having trouble with that, and I asked if he was a MUFON member, and he is. And uh, so that, that's been a, an ongoing issue just as well, um, which is a whole different conversation we could have. But looking at what we know about this case, again, it, it doesn't seem that they saw some sort of an advanced craft. I don't think that they got a very good look at what they saw. And whatever it was seemed to be escorted or moved along or whatever by these helicopters. And it really seemed to really bear the hallmarks of some sort of a military operation or something along those lines. And while, again, we can't account for who may have had the helicopters at that time, there are multiple witnesses that claim that they actually heard and saw the helicopters on that night. And finally, an interesting point that ties this in with another famous UFO case. This occurred within just a couple of nights, the Rendlesham Forest incident.
2: Right. That occurred, yeah.
6: yeah. In Suffolk. So um, after that interview with Kirk Collins and, and and really kind of breaking down some of the things, I asked him point blank, I said, was there ever any information that suggested Betty Cash tried to poison herself with household cleaners and laid under a heat lamp? He said, no. Uh, naming the skeptic who only I think went by uh, Zome Chomsky online, he said <laughs> yeah, he said he said Zom made that up. That, and this is interesting. We disbelieve the narrative that is presented by the so-called air quotes go up again UFO witnesses so greatly that we have to engage in character assassination and create our own entire false narrative to discredit their story. Well, that's good skepticism. Now, Bob didn't do that. Bob Schaefer didn't say that. He didn't say any of that, although he did maintain that he thought the women just made the story up. I don't know that that's a fair assessment, you know, and that's where I would disagree with Bob, although I agree with him on a lot of things and the necessity for skepticism. I don't think it's necessarily fair just to say that these women made this up. Um, A friend of mine with the space program who shall have to go unnamed for for, for reasons of anonymity contacted me after the interview. And he said, listen, um, I'll tell you something. Check out this patent. And he sent along a patent for a device from the 1960s. Uh, that was essentially a high-intensity thermal radiation unit that was designed for purposes of being able to emit a large amount of light over a sustained period, uh, for purpose of maybe you know illuminating a you know a, you know a, a, any any number of different uh, you know locations or or settings within probably military context. And it was something that was designed to have been able to be capable of being suspended in the air by a balloon. Um, looking at that patent, and I still have uh, information about that, I I sent that to Kurt Collins and I said, Kurt, look at this. And uh, the description of the thing being balloon-like sounded an awful lot to me like the object that was described in this patent, which I had felt at the time of reading that uh, conceivably could have been an object that in an experimental fashion might have been capable of producing enough of the non-ionizing radiation and to define that absolutely clearly, probably UV, radiation that might have been capable of, of burning Betty Cash. Uh, whether or not right. that proved the other kinds of sickness and whatnot, I don't know, but we know about sun sickness and everything that can result from the photochemical yeah. damage of sunburn. It very well may have been the case that if she suffered from any kind of, of of sickness, you know, actual, you know, nausea or whatnot following that incident, it could have been something very similar to that. Which not, would
2: also explain why they didn't find gamma radiation at the site. Exactly. Yeah, Exactly,
6: because everybody went out there and they tried to say there was no evidence of radiation. Well, there certainly wasn't nuclear radiation or anything akin to that. They were looking for that. They didn't find it, and this might exactly you know, be the very reason why. It was some other kind of probably non-ionizing radiation, more likely UV to me, if there was any damage truly incurred as a result. But if none of that even relates to this case and the women just saw a light and a bunch of helicopters, it still sounds likely to me it was some sort of a military or other agency in uh, you know, in an operative fashion, carrying this out, question would be why in the world what was going on there around Christmas time. But I don't, I don't. Just again, I don't think that the absolute lack of evidence. And I guess some would probably, you know, they would laugh and say, "You're not a good skeptic for saying this." But there are others of a very skeptical mind who agree. The absolute, the absolute and utter lack of evidence does not necessarily always, in my mind, constitute or warrant the necessity for. Debunking the claims of a person because if in a court of law a person is asked and they swear on oath, yes, this is what I observed. That's the individual I saw, and this is the crime they committed. That oath in a court of law can actually result in, you know, a a uh, an actual sentence. You know, being brought yeah, against it's, an individual. it's, a, it's and acceptable, been, right? And, and there there have been people who have been sentenced to you know prison time based on uh, erroneous. Uh, Information given by so-called witnesses in those cases under oath. Now, that doesn't mean to say, or rather I don't present this to say that we need to call into question everything that every witness says, although I think we should, but I also think that from time to time we need to say that, listen, just because all the evidence we have is what the witness describes, that does not mean it didn't happen and that they were absolutely either A, out of their minds, B, making it up, or C, purposefully trying to perpetrate a hoax so that they could get money or something and that's what some of the skeptics have tried to say about Betty Cash and Vicki Landrum they tried to fake becoming ill after being in close proximity to something so that they could get free you know, medical care or find some way to make a settlement and get money for this. Didn't and, they sue
2: the federal government though or know, they
6: tried? I believe that there was a suit yeah. And there was a lawyer that represented them. And of course, you know, he has been involved in some interesting things over the years himself. But there there absolutely was that component, which I think is what drove the skeptical mindset that, oh, the, these women were just trying to they were just trying to make money. But I would argue, you know, if somebody just wants to try and make money. There would be far more credible and reliable ways, I would think, that someone could scam people for money than trying to go around claiming that they saw a UFO over a highway in December in, in Dayton, Texas. You know, if if you want to make money you know, let's at least make up a plausible story. These women didn't seem like they made up a very plausible story. In fact, everything about the story, as we can see from the debate that rages, you know, so many decades later in relation to it, it's obviously something that falls well outside the norm. And that's not going to be the kind of thing that would be a plausible scenario that these women could use for purpose of monetization, you know, through fraudulent means thereafter. In my opinion, they actually saw something and they tried to gain recompense for that. But what they saw... And what actually happened, I think, has been grossly distorted in the UFO literature that has followed.
2: Right. Well, Michael, we're kind of running out of time here, but in the time we have left, uh, you also had our good friend Dr. Future on the show. Yes, sir. And talking about the Georgia Guidestones. And I just kind of wanted to get your uh, opinion on what uh, he had to talk about there.
6: You know, Mike, uh, I, I emailed him just today, and uh, we've uh, spoken on the phone a couple of times uh, before and after the um, the interview I did, uh, which I want to thank you, by the way, for uh, turning me on to his uh, research. Absolutely. Uh, just to put it, to put, to put it you know, quite, quite plainly, uh, I think that uh, Mike Bennett and, uh, you know, of course, you know, Chris Pinto, who's worked with him on that film project you know, for the uh, documentary, uh, I think they've nailed it. And I think that uh, it's the most plausible uh, scenario put forth for the Georgia Guidestones that I've found. Uh, I think Mike did a, a wonderful job, and uh, and I'm I'm interested also in some of his uh, research beyond just the Georgia Guidestones. In fact, he, he's he's an all around interesting guy. He had oh, me yeah. when he, by the by the time he told me he had a, a Ph.D. in chemistry, I was immediately hooked. <laughs> so, you know, but. Um, Yeah, I think that uh, Mike and the the gang, they've absolutely nailed that, and I think that we can lay that one to rest, which, again, if we had good people out there who were really doing good investigative research on more of these kinds of cases, we would probably be able to come to very worldly rather than otherworldly or even conspiratorial. We'd come to very uh, sensible, prosaic understanding of a lot of these things, although a lot of what Mike found in relation to the uh, Georgia Gunstones does seem to touch on, you know, the ideas of, uh, you know, everything from eugenics and, uh, and, and, and and certain racist, you know, kind of sentiments uh, to, to those that, that uh, have to do with secret societies, namely the Rosicrucians. So, you know, from time to time, you do find that these uh, cultural elements are components in the broader narrative in relation to these kind of things. But it was very good research the guys did. And it was really a pleasure to talk with Mike about that. Dr. Future. Dr. Future. Um, he will be welcome. He will be welcome in our circles most any time, and I know that you and he have an Excellent. affinity for strange films and whatnot. So yes, yes we so, do. I have to come over and join you guys for movie night. <laughs> night so.
2: Well, uh, Luke is uh, Luke is a big uh, fan of eugenics. He, he believes in the Georgia Guidestones yeah. philosophies because he doesn't want to wait in traffic for to all get the road. Great, so. get more
3: people to hate me, man. <laughs> Yeah. You, uh, we we vote Trump in, maybe we'll get like a eugenics program 2016 going on. Yeah, that
2: might happen. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm
3: down. <laughs> you know he was at Rocket Town uh, yesterday, right? He was
2: at Rocket Town.
3: He was at Rocket Town. Yeah.
2: Why Rocket Town?
3: I don't know. <laughs> what a weird place. He he was there speaking, and uh, I I just Kira hates him, so I was just joking around with her. I was like, hey, let's do that today, babe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go over there. <laughs> well, vodka. It's been awesome having you on. Tell everybody where they can, you know, find your website, where they can get your books, and, and and see what else that you've been working on. Oh, guys! Well, first, it's been my pleasure.
6: Always a great time coming on the show with you. Um, you can find my stuff at uh, www. com. That's my website, and then also the podcast that I produce each week is at GralienReport. G R A L I E N Report. dot com. I'm I'm soon planning to relaunch the Micah Hanks podcast, which will deal with news and events. Rather than the science and the unexplained, like the Greilio report does. But of course, you know you can find all my articles there at Micahanks.com. Still writing for Mysterious Universe, so be on the lookout for some of my articles over there at their website. And I'll see you guys if not sooner at the Paradigm Symposium 2015. Oh, absolutely.
2: And we didn't even get to talk about airships tonight or uh, mystery booms, but uh, we 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 could talk about that at, at Paradigm Symposium when we have when we do a little interview there. So.
6: Anytime. I'm always happy to jump on with you guys, so I'm sure there'll be time in the future.
2: But I think it was definitely uh, important to talk about what happened this last week and, you know, kind of delve into that and explore it a little bit, you know.
6: And then I want to thank you guys for allowing me to talk about that a little bit, you know. And unlike, few though they may be, the critics that have engaged me, you know, they don't want to have a narrative or, or they don't want to have a debate or a discussion about these things and look at a sensible uh, interpretation of what's going on in america today how do we deal with this it's this point click and that's in no me by no means a gun joke but but there is a very kind of a knee-jerk point like okay this is what you think whether you think it or not this is what i think you think and therefore i'm going to shut you down shut up you're done you're an idiot and we're we're, we're not going to talk about it anymore the only way we're going to be able to move forward is to begin the discussion and, you know we maybe have done a little of that tonight so thank you guys for having me on
2: yeah absolutely thank yeah, you yeah thanks man good on. talking to you uh, stay on the line for us, Michael. We're just going to close out this segment, but uh, I guess we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal.
3: Yeah, I I don't like Obama. I don't much care for him at all. To be honest with you, every time it comes on TV, I turn the damn channel. Oh. <laughs> Y'all, you know, I know, bailing hay. <laughs> I keep I keep out of the politics
2: and politicking and, <laughs> and such. <laughs> Look into the south. <laughs> what
3: else? What else do they talk about? It was funny. <laughs> she asked him some question about like. Yeah, we're
2: not, talking about a documentary that you that you watched, yeah. right? Like it, it,
3: going around in Mississippi and like talking to everybody uh, about what they think about what's going on, in current events, and political climate.
2: Getting like the the tone of the nation. <laughs> yeah, talk about Donald Trump. I heard something today that. Apparently, like he wants to deport like 11 million, <laughs> 11 million illegal immigrants and stuff. Did you see the footage of him like throwing the reporter, the reporter out of the? Uh, yeah, yeah. He's like, of, he's like, get out of my country. Yeah, well, no, no, the, the, actually, the guy, the, the his bodyguard said that to him. He said, get out of my country. Trump said, Trump said, you need to go back to Yonavest, <laughs>
3: Dude, he's so offensive, man.
2: Yeah. Well, you 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 were saying when we were talking to Micah, we get too much to talk about this, but like he came to he he was here in Nashville yesterday, right on the Saturday, the 29th Yeah. And he he went to Rocket Town. He went to Rocket Town is, of all places. Nobody knows. That's like a like a it's like a. But it's like a club like a like a christian yeah oriented. it's like a
3: ymca for skateboarding kids yeah and, and well but but it's not just skateboarding though like they have uh uh music production and stuff like that too and all they have all kinds of programs
2: so interesting that he went to rocket town I yeah know. i know of very, all the places in national yeah, you would dude. think he would speak in like a hall or something like that right
3: that's really weird
2: yeah, that, that is. Maybe that they're
3: is, trying to appeal to the children or something. It's probably uh, the cheapest venue you can find. Yeah, right. Exactly. Nobody plays Rocket Town anymore because like they have uh, the restriction on like the bands can't be. You know they have to be like Christian labels right, now. Right. They can't. They can't be like satanic bands and stuff. So. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, I remember seeing Rancid there uh, about ten years ago.
3: Yeah, well, that, well, that was before the yeah, limitations the
2: restrictions. <laughs> Yeah, I know they, they mostly were Christian bands. Which, it,
3: well, all, all the parents, all the parents of these kids that are part of the organization, got pissed off. In 2005, whenever Black Dolly and Murder came with Biohazard and like, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was like one other like I can't remember what who they were. Municipal was Waste or something.
2: like that? No, no, no.
3: It, it was it was a it was like a straight up satanic band that was there. And then some some no. kid some kid went home to his rich mom, you know, or rich parents who probably donated a bunch of money toward the cause, and was just like,
2: guess who I saw, mom and dad. I watched Black Dolly Murder! (laughs) And they're like, Dude, what? Are they sacrificing children on (laughs) on stage? (laughs) Well, you went to something interesting over the, like, last weekend. Yeah.
3: Um, My my girl's got me partying hard all the time because she's into the EDM culture. Right. uh, Electro dance movement.
2: Did Uh, you you, you do, like, any heavy hallucinogens? Did you have, like, a religious experience? No, I
3: probably would have if someone offered me some, but, like... It was actually, it was pretty straight laced. I mean, I was, I was just sitting there drinking my beer the whole time, and, uh, it was on, uh, it was the smallest island on Percy Priest Lake. It's called Luau Island. And it's only like, maybe, Two of these rooms that we're sitting in. So imagine like two (laughs) like two garages as big as the the, uh, island is. Like how
2: many people were
3: there? Hundreds. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, like uh, so they
2: just were like running boats back and forth. Yeah, uh, uh,
3: bringing a ferry and then everyone else was. uh, Then another another organization stepped in and I guess they were charging people too. Whenever they found out what was going on, they started charging people too for ferry rides. But uh, no, it was awesome, man. And um, the Party Basics, the group that threw it, they're going to be doing a, bu- a bunch more events and stuff like that. But the EDM culture doesn't even wake up till, like, the afternoon, <laughs> you know. Right. So so me and Kira are there uh, around, like, you know, noon, and, and there's just a handful of people. But then we leave the island at, like, 7 o'clock because uh, we had to go somewhere else. And um, then that's when everyone just started pouring in. People were giving BJ's on the island in front of everyone.
2: Wow! Like, like
3: just out in the open.
2: <laughs> Sounds like a good time, man. Yeah, dude. <laughs> it,
3: but it, it was fun. It was super fun. I mean, that little little bitty island, loud music, and beer. Man, I mean, it does, it doesn't get any better than that. And the weather was the weather <laughs> like was perfect.
2: The perfect, per- the, the perfect like, thing for living. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's my paradise.
2: <laughs> Bear. I, actually, Bear bitches. actually, yeah. Well, well not so much the bitches. Take anymore. the bitches part out, yeah.
3: Don't get me in trouble. She, there's a chance she might listen to this episode. <laughs> no, no, but my my paradise would be like the same thing I, we just talked about, but plus some big toys. I need like a boat or a four wheeler.
2: Yeah, so you can do some budding.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: It may be like guns involved. Guns and like hard well, well, I
3: have guns already. Guns and jet skis and EDM. Uh, and- <laughs> Dude, oh, man. you get me excited.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, next, uh, we'll, be, we'll be back here in two weeks, and we're going to be having another return guest we're going to have on Doc Marquis, <laughs> and we're going to talk about the Illuminati. And just kind of like cover some things that maybe we didn't cover the first time with him. That's like a long time ago, man. It that was, it like was like that moment generation. I was
3: indoctrinated as a seventh generation right, witch. Yeah, we
2: just used him in our, if you didn't notice, we used his voice in our uh, our intro, our new intro song. Thanks to Luke.
3: Woo! Yeah, yeah, thanks to me. I'm sorry it sucks, guys. <laughs> I've been doing it for years and I'm just too lazy to do my homework, so...
2: But uh, he's also got somebody, he's also got something he wants to talk to us about and uh, something he's trying to trying to push. So, but uh, we'll be happy to have him back on. It should be an interesting, interesting discussion. Uh, after that, I've got a gentleman named Scott Bennett coming on and we're going to talk about uh, his book called Shell Game and about some... Uh, the funding of ISIS that has been going on by our government—that he has some information on—which I think will be interesting. Well,
3: it's about damn
2: time. And then, uh, Michael I, he- Mike, Dr. Heiser will be coming. I, back
3: I knew, on. I knew, dude, I knew something like that was going on.
2: Oh yeah, it's been yeah, it's definitely been
3: going. I'm just on. too lazy to actually look anything up about uh, it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the month, we'll have uh, Peter Robbins talk about. Uh, Rindlesham Forest and some other things, uh, UFO, some good UFO stuff, and then we will be at paradigm Symposium. However, the announcement is, is that you, everyone will miss Luke there, so...
3: Oh, oh, I'm sure people yeah. will just be heartbroken hey, that i don't fans, make an man. appearance you
2: have your fans No, you they'll probably be wearing a, a, a luke t-shirt
3: oh please <laughs> we're gonna skype
4: you though so it's all good
2: yeah you know what we could do is oh, we could we, we sure. could have uh, we could have like a cardboard cut out of luke yeah Just, like, you and, should and be hey
3: a blow-up doll luke <laughs> oh that'd be great
2: <laughs> a luke real doll yes
3: no <laughs> oh, way that's too expensive you guys have twelve thousand dollars and yeah sure but,
2: it would, like put like like a, like a screen on its so it has Luke's face on it. It's like hey, you're, you're talking
3: about some like artificial
2: intelligence
3: movie <laughs> shit,
2: like a robotic Luke.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just, it's really it's just an iPad on Skype with like a bunch of clothes stuffed <laughs> with hay or something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's wearing like a Gorgoroth T-shirt.
3: <laughs> I like them. I, I I'm glad you said that. I hadn't listened to them in a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys.
2: We'll be back in a couple weeks to join us then on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs>
5: False flag, buildings falling down. False flag, false flag, bodies hit the ground. Was it Bush and Cheney, or Lee Harvey Oswald? False flag, false flag, traitors all around. What comes next? Will they take our guns, Marshall? To fool us, but they'll never rule us. False flag, false flag, dog and pony hoax. won't stop us when they try to mark us. Take your FEMA camps, shove them up your butts. What comes next? Will they take our guns? Body bags, they have just begun. Buy some gold. Wait, my friend, I've told you before guns and gold won't stop the evil one. Sometimes when the mouth offends, you need a hand to cover it. Sometimes when the mouth offends, you need a hand to cover it.